My name is David Kershaw. I'm from the Law Department at the LSE. Uh, and I'm talking to you today about uh, risk versus responsibility in the regulation of the company. Um, as you know, this is a thinking like a social scientist lecture series, which is uh, sponsored by Sage Publications, for which we're, we're very grateful. Um, and this set of series, this term is focusing upon uh, risk, hence risk versus responsibility in the regulation of the company. Um, I think I've probably got about 25 minutes to talk. I've not tested this, though. It could go for a couple of hours, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. Hopefully not. It could go for 15 minutes. We'll find out. Okay. Um, the company form is a vehicle for, for generating wealth. It enables people with business ideas, people with managerial skills, and people with financial wherewithal to come together to exploit ideas and to generate wealth. One question that a social scientist would ask is, well, what is it about the corporate form that enables wealth generation? That social scientist would look at the core attributes of the corporate form, separate legal personality and limited liability, and would ask, how do those attributes enable economic activity? How does separate legal personality facilitate the raising of finance? How, if at all, does limited liability encourage people to exploit ideas? Social scientists would see that the core attributes of the corporation, the core attributes of the company, again, separate legal personality and limited liability, are institutions that reduce the risks associated with business activity. Let's have a look at that and see, and see why that is. These attributes of the corporate form encourage people to take risks they might not, might not otherwise be willing to take. Take a bank, for example. A bank thinking about lending money to an individual person, a sole trader. That sole trader's got a business idea, and the bank's thinking about whether or not he's going to make a loan to that person. Um, the bank would wish, would wish to, in thinking about whether to make that loan, would ask questions such as, is it a high-quality product? What is the market for that product? How competitive is that product? The bank wants to assess the business risks associated with making that loan. And the bank, of course, is well-placed to assess these business risks, but it's less well-placed to assess the personal risks associated with lending money to this person, this person, the sole trader. Does she, for example, gamble? Does she take care over her personal finances? Whilst the bank may be poor at assessing those personal risks, if such personal risks are, in fact, realised, then clearly they could damage the company. They could, damage the, they could damage the business, I should say, and its ability to produce cash to repay the loan. What happens, for example, if that person is an addicted and unsuccessful gambler? Um, if she fails to pay her debts, will the bookie seize and sell the business assets to satisfy those personal debts? The seizer of such assets would, of course, damage the business and the ability of the business to generate cash to pay back the loan. Such personal risks increase the return the bank will demand for the loan, or even result in the bank refusing to make the loan at all. However, if the business is carried out through the corporate form, through a company, that the entrepreneur owns through his shareholding in the company, then the assets and liabilities of the business are separated from the assets and liabilities of the entrepreneur as an individual person. The bank can then ignore those personal risks associated with the entrepreneur, and will then make the loan, hopefully, and at a lower interest rate than they would otherwise have done. Separate legal personality, therefore, is a risk reducer. The same can be said of limited liability. All projects involve some risk of failure. 
However, as a society, we want, to, we want people to exploit projects even though they contain a risk, indeed a significant risk possibly of failure, provided that such risky projects have a positive expected return. That is, in short, that the probability that the project will generate value exceeds the probability that the project uh, will lose value. However, an entrepreneur concerned that exploiting an idea individually could expose him to personal liability if the venture fails may refuse to try and exploit the positive expected value idea at all. He may simply leave that idea on the shelf. The institution of limited liability limits the entrepreneur's liability in relation to the business venture to what he has agreed to pay for the shares in the company. That is the sum total of his exposure, what he has agreed to pay for the shares in the company. He is not liable for the debts of the company, which is a separate legal person. Accordingly, limited liability enables the idea to be exploited without putting all of the entrepreneur's existing personal assets on the line. And this, of course, increases the probability that the idea will, in fact, be exploited, from which we can all, as a society, benefit. We see from this last example that the corporate form is both a risk-reducing institution and a risk-incentivizing institution. Risk is reduced for the entrepreneur in order to incentivize her to take a risk, a risk that has a positive expected value. The corporate form is therefore about incentivizing risk-taking, taking risks to generate value. Now, when we look inside the company, within the company, we see this very clearly. Depending on the jurisdiction, company law empowers or facilitates the empowerment of expert managers. In the UK, this takes place by shareholders delegating corporate power, which originates with them, to the board of directors, who then in turn partially delegate power and authority to the company's senior managers, CEO, CFO, etc. Those senior managers and directors are entrusted with those powers to make decisions about the use of the company's resources in order to generate value. The directors and senior managers are expected to take risks with these powers that have been delegated to them, to use and invest the company's resources in the projects and ideas that have the highest positive expected value. Those projects, of course, will involve the risk of failure, the risk that the company may lose all it invests, indeed that it may lose more than it invests. Without risk, there is, of course, no return. The corporate form is, therefore, a vehicle for empowering expert managers to take risks to generate value. However, whilst we entrust managers with power and authority to generate value, the central question for corporate lawyers is can we, in fact, trust them to do what we have empowered them to do. This is the central conundrum for contemporary corporate law, and it is a conundrum that, as good interdisciplinary social scientists, we have come to describe not through the language of law, but through the language of economics, the economics of the agency problem. The problem is that empowered managers may not always use their powers and their position to benefit the company, to enhance value, rather they may use those powers and authority to benefit themselves. An economic agency problem, generally speaking, arises where one person is in a position, not necessarily because they've been legally empowered, but they are in a position to act in ways that detrimentally affect the well-being of another person, another party. Through this lens, the problem we have described in relation to managers is an economic agency problem, a managerial agency problem. The manager is the agent, 
the company or the shareholders are the principals. Not legal agents, but not legal agents or principals, but economic ones. And the extent to which managers use those powers to benefit themselves and not to benefit the company, to the extent to which they do so, we say that agency costs are incurred. Corporate law deploys multiple tools to regulate and contain the managerial agency problem. Regulators readily respond to corporate failure and crisis with additional tools or variations on, on existing tools to attempt to further reduce the scope for managers to incur agency costs. Indeed, so prevalent is the ag agency cost framework and the accompanying profound distrust of managers that corporate lawyers often fall into the trap of thinking that corporate law is just about agency cost control, agency cost regulation. Now, a second thought reveals that such approach would be misguided and incorrect. The agency problem is, of course, a second-order problem that flows inevitably from the use of the corporate form to enable managers to take risks to obtain the maximum benefit from those ideas and projects. Now, of course, managers will sometimes abuse that authority and will sometimes make catastrophic errors by, by taking excessive or misjudged risks. But this commitment to authority that is the corporate form is a macroeconomic commitment, namely that the benefits when applied to the operations of all companies in our economy will exceed the cost produced by abuse, excessive risk-taking and errors. Accordingly, uh, we need to be careful that when we regulate to address managerial misbehavior, to address those agency costs and failings, that such regulation does not excessively interfere with managerial authority. We do so at our peril. Uh, now, this is not my idea. Um, Kenneth Arrow, um, Nobel laureate, put this as follows. To serve its functions, responsibility must be capable of correcting errors but should not be such as to destroy the genuine values of authority. Clearly, a sufficiently strict and continuous organ of responsibility can easily amount to a denial of authority. If every decision of A is to be reviewed by B, then all we have really is a shift in the locus of authority from A to B, and hence no solution to the original problem. To maintain the value of authority, it would appear that responsibility must be intermittent. Now, this is a lesson which arguably UK regulators and legislators have time and time again failed to heed. Indeed, the story of UK corporate law in the 20th century and the early 21st century is the story of the increasing encroachment of responsibility and accountability. This encroachment, at least theoretically, threatens the effective use of managerial authority, encroaches on the freedom of managers and the freedom that managers have to take risks. Now, whether it does so in practice is hugely difficult to empirically verify, but the theoretical concern alone is of significant cause for concern. Now, we need to put some, some flesh on the bones of these ideas, and uh, what I'm going to do is, is use an example, and the example I'm going to use is the example of the expectations of competence which the law imposes through the duty of care owed by directors to companies. Now, the duty of care in all jurisdictions owed by directors to their companies uh, sets forth a behavioural expectation of directors. It provides a minimum level of care that we expect direct from directors when they do their job, when they make decisions, when they delegate authority to managers, when they monitor those managers. If we think about the duty of care as a behavioural expectation that we have for directors, then most of us would wish, I think, to set a high behavioural benchmark. We may want, we, we may want directors to be 
very careful or extremely careful or for the lawyers of you in this room and I see there are a few of you here for my, my courses you've heard some of these ideas before um, uh, we might say we would want them to be reasonably careful a high expectation one would think would lead to better behavior less shirking more competence lower agency costs but the question we have here is well does a high expectation in relation to care always make sense a recent example from the United States is instructive in this regard. We all know the Walt Disney Company, we've all seen their films, uh, but corporate lawyers know it for a different, although I think similarly entertaining reason. In the late 1990s, Walt Disney needed to recruit a new executive president of the company. Michael Eisner, the company's CIO, identified a Mr. Michael Ovitz uh, as a prime candidate for this position of executive president. Now, Mr. Ovitz was one of the founders, is one of the founders and executive officers of Hollywood's premier talent, agent, talent agency, the Creative Artist Agency. Um, as such, uh, he was very successful and made a lot of money. Uh, as such, he generated an annual income, I understand, of approximately $20 million. So Disney realized that if they wanted to persuade Mr. Ovitz to join them as executive president, that they would have to pay him a lot of money. They were going to have to pay him top dollar. Now, as important background uh, to this case, before we get there, now Disney had what is known as a compensation committee, um, or what we call in the UK a remuneration committee. And now all listed companies, both in the UK and the US, have a compensation or remuneration committee. Uh, a compensation committee can consists of a committee of part-time, non-executive directors who are independent of any connections to management. It's their job to set the pay levels for the executive directors, for senior managers. Now, sitting on this committee, sitting on Walt Disney's compensation committee, uh, was a one very famous, uh, Sidney Poitier, famous actor and director, and there were three other non-executive directors. Now, in relation to trying to persuade Mr. Ovitz to join the company, um, the chair of the compensation committee, Mr. Russell, and Mr. Eisner courted Mr. Ovitz and, in fact, agreed a compensation package with Mr. Ovitz. Uh, an eye-watering compensation package, I must say. Um, these are the core uh, elements of that package. Um, sort of compensation arrangement we would all like to have. Um, a five-year contract for Mr. Ovitz with no ability to give notice except for gross negligence. A, a typical contract in the UK would be for one year, maximum of one year. Most major uh, companies, the CEOs have a contract for no more than one year. Uh, a five-year contract, no termination. A one million pound, a one million dollar base salary with an annual bonus and two tranches of share options. The first tranche uh, when he started with the company and the second tranche was going to be provided if he uh, continued with the company five years later. Now, as you would expect, uh, the compensation package also addressed uh, compensation upon termination. Um, compensation on termination. If Mr. Ovitz was terminated by the company without cause, i.e. there was no really strong ground to, um, uh, to fire him, he'd not committed any illegality, for example. If he was terminated without cause, what did he get? Well, he got the remaining one billion, one million, one million dollars of his uh, salary for the remaining five years, that sounds good, a payment of 7.5 million to compensate him for the fact that he wouldn't be getting a bonus because he was no longer working at the company for every one of those five years. Um, the first tranche of options that he received would now vest and would be exercisable, which means that he could buy shares with those options and then sell them, um, and assuming those shares were in the money, make a significant profit. Um, 
and also in addition a $10 million payment to compensate him for the fact that as he no longer worked for the company, he would not uh, be getting the second tranche of options. It's a pretty good deal. Now, a well-known pay consultant uh, described this pay package as the best of both worlds for Mr. Ovitz, low risk and high return. Now, you might reasonably ask, in what circumstances could any director ever think these terms were a good deal for the company? But here, this is not our concern. Here, our concern is whether the directors took an appropriate degree of care in deciding whether employing Mr. Ovitz on these terms was, in fact, good for the company. Did they take sufficient care in making this decision to employ Mr. Ovitz on these terms? Uh, what sort of independent advice did they obtain? What comparisons with other similar positioned employees in similar types of companies uh, were being uh, provided? Uh, what questions did they ask about these arrangements? How, you know, did, did, they, did they pummel the chief executive officer about with questions about the appropriateness of these arrangements? Uh, how much time and attention did they pay to the decision? How much thought did they give that decision? And here, in Walt Disney, there appears to be significant cause for concern, at least in relation to two of the directors on the compensation committee who were completely uninvolved in this process. Now, whilst the chairman of the compensation committee, Mr. Russell, was involved at all times in the process, Mr. Poitier and one of the other directors were not involved in the negotiation process at all. Indeed, they were not even aware that the company was trying to recruit Mr. Ovitz until very shortly before the deal that we've just seen here was finalized. They weren't involved in finalizing those arrangements in any shape whatsoever. Um, Mr. Poitier and his co-director, along with the other directors sitting on the compensation committee, approved of these arrangements in a one-hour compensation committee meeting, in which multiple other non-related issues were discussed and dealt with. At best, Mr. Ovis's compensation package received about 20 minutes of time. Um, not a significant amount of time and attention. Now, what happened next? Well, Mr. Ovitz joined Walt Disney, who wouldn't? Uh, but it soon became clear that he was a poor fit for the company. And after only a year, in, in his, after only a year his employment relationship was terminated, and importantly, was terminated without cause. Mr. Ovitz walked away from Walt Disney with approximately $130 million for a year's, apparently, not very good work good work if you can get it. The question that was raised was whether the board, and in particular the uninvolved members of the compensation committee, had acted in accordance with their duty of care to the company. Now, if one thinks about this through the lens of the question, what do we expect of directors, the answer surely has to be no. How could, it, how could they have complied with their duty of care? They gave almost no attention to one of the most important jobs a compensation committee member can do. However, the Delaware courts answered this question, yes, the director's actions did comply with their duty of care. Now, how could this be? The answer is, the duty of care in Delaware, because Walt Disney is a Delaware company and governed by Delaware law, thinks beyond the individual case and makes a macroeconomic election in favor of managerial authority. The duty of care is a statement of what we expect of directors, but also a standard of liability. If directors fail to live up to that standard, they will be found liable. Well, what's wrong with that, you might ask? The problem, according to Delaware, the Delaware courts, is that courts judge events ex post, after they have happened, 
with the benefit of hindsight, with the knowledge that the decision the directors took resulted in failure. This hindsight bias, the knowledge of the outcome, distorts, so think, think the Delaware courts, the assessment of whether care was taken. When directors and managers make decisions, there is unavoidably a component of risk of failure. But when judges review the decision taken, they do so with knowledge of failure. That knowledge distorts the judge's assessment of how likely failure was when the managers took the original decision. That is, with the benefit of hindsight, judges overweight the probability of failure at the time the directors took the decision. This may make a competent decision look incompetent through the judge's eyes. Judges may readily assume what they view as an incompetent decision must have been generated by a flawed process, a failure to take enough care. Accordingly, the effect of judging with hindsight may be that a good, or indeed a good enough process, appears to the judge to be a flawed process. So what does this mean? What are the implications of this if this is correct? It means that directors and managers who feel assured of their own competence and ability to take care may, because they are distrustful of the fairness of ex post judicial review, they may either refuse to serve on boards, or if they do serve, they may be just too careful. When they exercise corporate power, they may act in a risk-averse fashion. They may avoid those positive, expected value projects that offer a high return because there is a significant risk of failure which could result in them being brought before the courts and subject to ex-post review by judges who judge with the benefit of hindsight. This negative effect of the duty of care on risk-taking is more pronounced, of course, the more demanding the law makes the care expectation. The lower the expectation, the less likely it is that a judge judging with hindsight will find that there has been a breach of duty. So here we see a direct trade-off between manager authority on the one hand and the manager authority and the promotion of risk-taking on the one hand and holding directors to account to reduce managerial agency costs on the other. Walt Disney could, of course, be regularly, readily presented through the lens of agency costs arising from directors shirking their responsibilities. A demanding duty of care would therefore reduce agency costs, but a high standard of care would also run the significant risk to the economy that companies as a whole in the United States would start leaving good projects on the shelf. The Delaware courts clearly prioritize managerial authority and the promotion of risk-taking over the goal of holding managers to account. They do so by having a standard of care that is breached only by what they call gross negligence which the courts have said involves a reckless indifference for the interest of shareholders. And whilst in the Walt Disney judgment, the Delaware courts did recognize that the behavior of the board in Walt Disney was significantly below the standards of care we would ideally like to see, it did not amount to reckless indifference. But for regulators, herein lies the problem. Individual cases such as Walt Disney create media furore, public outrage. Regulators and politicians naturally, in the face of the demands of public opinion, feel compelled to respond with agency cost-reducing measures, to hold managers to account and to hold those directors to account. Perhaps the genius of American corporate law, which we see in the Walt Disney case, is that the state-based production of corporate law keeps some of these regulatory pressures in abeyance. Now, in the United States, as we've seen, uh, company law is state-based. Each of the 50 states has its own company law. 
This means that states compete to attract companies to incorporate in their states and to pay what are known as franchise taxes. Delaware, a small state of only a million uh, people, um, is the clear winner in this process of regulatory competition, with over 50% of US Fortune 500 companies incorporated in Delaware. Now, whilst there is much debate about whether states make their laws attractive to managers or shareholders to attract incorporations, it is clear that managers are a very important constituency to Delaware lawmakers. This client-like relationship unquestionably dampens the pressure to respond to public outrage with agency cost-reducing legal measures. The state-based process of lawmaking in the United States, therefore, provides some degree of protection for the policy of managerial authority and risk-taking against managerial responsibility and accountability. Now, here in the UK, where lawmaking is centralized, where corporate lawmaking is centralized, the policy of managerial authority and risk-taking is not similarly protected. And in my view, time and time again in the UK, regulators have focused too much on the immediate concerns of managerial agency cost control that particular bad events give rise to, and have too readily lost sight of what is the core function of the corporate form to empower managerial experts to take informed risks with company resources to generate value. And now again, the example of the duty of care and the enforcement of its enforcement of the UK is a good example of this. Now, for directors who turned up to board meetings and acted, uh, the standard and expectation of care for directors in the UK has always been very high, requiring at a minimum that they take the care that an average person would take when acting on its own behalf, and where the director is more skilled, has more skills and experience than the average director, the law requires that the director take at least the care that a hypothetical director would take, where that hypothetical director has the actual skills and experience of the actual director. It's a high standard, in my view. Now, such a high standard would raise significant concerns about the chilling of risk and board service that we have identified. However, prior to 1929, these concerns were eliminated. Even though we had a high standard, these concerns were eliminated, as most companies in their corporate constitutions elected to waive liability for directors for breach of care. In 1925, in a famous case, the Inree City Equitable Fire case, directors were found to be in breach of their duty of care, but they were not held to be liable to compensate the company because of the existence in the Inree City Equitable Fire's company of a liability waiver. Now, what happened as a result of the Inree City Equitable Fire and the ensuing outrage was that the government acted. And what did they do? They banned liability waivers post-1929. However, a high standard, the high standard was still there, liability waivers had disappeared, a high standard without liability waivers did not result in the realization of the concerns that we have identified here about the chilling of risk and board service. Uh, and this was for another reason. Well, what was that? This reason was that the probability of being sued for breach of the high standard was exceptionally low. Why? Boards of directors rarely sue their own members. And under UK company law, prior to recent reforms, shareholders of large listed companies, in effect, had no rights to sue directors derivatively. That is, they had no right to bring an action on behalf of the company to hold directors account accountable for breach of duty. Prior to recent reforms, the probability of a director being sued for a breach of the duty of care was probably somewhere between zero and the probability that the company would fail, 
that it would go into liquidation and that the liquidator, liquidator would decide to sue the director. Now, this may indeed be a high enough probability to give directors some cause for concern, uh, but not enough, I, I think, to have a behavioral impact to affect the approach that directors would have to risk-taking and to affect the willingness of individuals to serve on boards. Now, this balance between a high standard and a low probability of enforcement has, however, been notably unsettled by recent reforms in the United Kingdom. This time, not as a result of a single, single clear corporate failure, but certainly a product of multiple corporate failures over the past two decades in the UK and the United States, including Maxwell, Bearings, Enron and WorldCom, as well as, I think, a growing public sense of lack of managerial accountability as exhibited both by those corporate failures, but also through narratives about excessive remuneration and fat managerial cats. One of the regulatory products of this anti, contemporary anti-managerial milieu is the reform on the rules of when shareholders can in fact bring actions on behalf of the company for breach of the director's duty of care, when they can actually sue directors derivatively on behalf of the company. Now, these new rules are set forth in the Companies Act 2006. They are complex and we, in this short lecture, don't have time to discuss them in depth here. In oversimplified essence, shareholders can now sue derivatively on behalf of the company where, following an application to court, the judge determines that it is in the company's best interest to pursue the litigation. Now, of course, judicial approval uh, places significant limitations on the availability of the right to sue derivatively, but without a doubt, uh, these changes are significant. They represent a marked increase in the probability of suit for the breach of the duty of care. Now, in the UK, therefore, it appears that we are now in the process of testing whether a high standard of care, which we still have, that standard of care has been changed slightly, we're not going to go into it here, but it's still very high. Uh, we're in the process of testing whether this high standard of care, uh, which is now exposed to increased enforcement, will indeed chill risk-taking in UK companies. We're in the process of testing whether laws that over-focus on agency costs and accountability will in fact undermine the core function of the corporate form. Now, doubtless, we'll have to wait and see whether this is the case, but recent events um, arising from the credit crisis, I think, clearly highlight this threat. And I just want to talk about one of those events and to close with a consideration of one of those events in relation to the duty of care. What I want to look at is the merger of Lloyds Bank and uh, HBOS. Now, this analysis, I stress, is purely based upon my understanding of the events as presented in the media and clearly, therefore, may bear no relationship to what actually happened. Nevertheless, let's look at the merger of Lloyds Bank and HBOS through the lens of the duty of care and its enforcement in the UK. I think it's a useful case study. Now, according to media reports, with governmental encouragement, Lloyds Bank agreed to purchase HBOS at the end of 2008. It quickly became clear that the purchase was completed. Quickly became clear after the purchase was completed that HBOS was in a far worse financial position than had been understood at the time the deal was completed. Indeed, it was reported in the FT last week that impairment charges taken by Lloyd's on HBOS amounted to approximately 13, 30 billion, 30 billion over the past two years. Lloyd's therefore paid eight billion dollars. At pounds for a company that was thought to have a book value of 18 billion. Um, 
taking into account these additional subsequent loan impairments, it turns out that HBOS actually had no book value at all when it was purchased. Now, subsequent to the completion of the deal, Lloyds Bank's, Lloyds Bank's chief executive officer, somewhat surprisingly, let it be known that Lloyds had, Lloyds had carried out three to five times less due diligence than would be normal. Now, let us assume that this is correct. Um, and that closer attention to the actual facts would reveal this to be correct and not a misrepresentation or a misstatement. Now, would a board who approved of this deal in such circumstances comply with their UK duty of care? Now, I think there would be very significant room for doubt. Here we have, apparently, a significant overpayment to buy a bank based upon clearly suboptimal due diligence when the board and management knew it was suboptimal at a time when it was very clear that it was very difficult to value bank assets. Would this be a decision that a reasonable average director with significant skills and experience would in fact take? Now, even if the answer is no, that the decision-making process amounts, does in fact amount to a breach of the duty of care, in this actual case, in Lloyd's HBOS, uh, there is very little uh, likelihood of derivative action. Um, it's very unlikely that a derivative action would be brought, and the reason for that is that the derivative action rules give majority shareholders an effective veto over bringing the action. And here, who is the majority shareholder? Well, it's the government who, in fact, orchestrated the deal in the first place. So very unlikely that they would allow this to happen. However, still makes for a good case study. If Lloyd's was, as it was before the crisis, a company owned by a diversified shareholder body, the probability of an action being allowed by the courts to be brought would appear to be, based upon the facts that we have, extremely high. The damages that would be claimed against the directors would, I think we have to assume, far exceed any directors and officers insurance that the directors would have. However, even if the standard was breach, I think it is for the reasons that we've been discussing in this lecture, wholly unclear that holding the directors to account in these circumstances described here is in fact a good idea. The general impact of directors on directors and managers' willingness to take risks, the impact on the willingness of individuals to serve on boards would be significant if uh, the Lloyds Bank directors were found to be in breach of duty and held to be liable. The effect of simply allowing litigation to be, to be brought derivatively, just bringing the litigation, I think would be very significant, would be considerable. The effect of obtaining judgment would be profound. Even if, let us assume, a court would have no doubt that these actions in the Lloyds HBOS case involved a breach of duty, even if they had no doubt there was a breach of duty. And let us assume, if this is indeed possible, and we might doubt that it is, let us assume that the court effectively rid itself of hindsight bias in making these decisions. Most directors would still struggle to accept this. They would be fearful that the decision did in fact represent an ex-post assessment of a good decision-making process distorted by the court's knowledge of actual failure. Accordingly, it would have a profound effect on how they behave, even where they themselves harbour no doubts about their ability in practice to live up to the legal expectation of care which UK law sets. So it appears to me that in this context, the context of the duty of care and reforms to the derivative action rules, UK law has fashioned a balance between managerial authority and risk-taking on the one hand and accountability and agency cost reduction on the other that, in my view, is far too heavily weighted in the direction of accountability. 
And whether this proves to be correct, we'll have to wait and see. We'll probably have to wait for the first uh, major case to be brought before the courts. Um, that hasn't happened yet, but I think given the inevitability, indeed, uh, the unavoidability of market economies to produce a corporate failure and crisis, uh, I suspect we might not have to wait for that long. Now, I, I, 40 minutes, longer than I thought it was going to take. Oh, it was 35 minutes. Um, so I think we take some questions now, is that right? If there are any, indeed. Um, putting my social scientist hat on, and I used to be in the insurance business, um, I would say to you that, coupled with my thoughts already about the accountancy profession, um, the legal profession is also not very good at um, assessing risk, or helping us to assess risk, because your both professions are dealing with risk after the fact. So we immediately have a, a failure of foresight, as I would call it, rather than a failure of hindsight. So where does that leave us all? Um, especially when it comes to all being investors. If we're all investors um, through pension funds and, and, and so on, and we keep having these corporate failures, um, how do we address this problem? Because we should have, somewhere on the line, managerial wisdom. And I don't know where this managerial wisdom is going to come from. Because surely we must rely on people to be in positions uh, corporately to make sure that corporations don't fail. Can you just talk about a second? They don't want a pen they can lend me, because otherwise I'll never be able to... <laughs> Sorry, carry on. Um. And you're, you're absolutely right that there isn't enough insurance in the world to give enough directors and officers liability insurance to protect people um, who are board directors. So it's, it's, it's no use us trying to sue anybody because we're never going to get the money back. So we have to find another way as as a society of dealing with this problem. I think I'll stop there. Yeah, no, th thank you. Very, very good point. Um, I, I think you're right. Lawyers aren't very good at assessing risk. Um, and um, when we look back in time at events that have happened in the past, um, we're even, even worse at assessing risk. And judges who are lawyers are even worse at assessing risk when they look at back in time. So if we look at the Delaware duty of care, that recognises that says, you know, lawyers, judges, this is not what we do well. Uh, not only do we not do it well, but we're likely to do it even worse if we try and assess, uh, look at how somebody assessed risk at some point in the past. So the solution for the Delaware courts, which is not an option that we have taken, the solution is to just to simply step back, to really profoundly step back and say, uh, you know, actually, we're not going to review those judgments, and actually, we're not really going to review the decision-making process that led to those judgments. We're just going to give managers freedom. Now, that leads to the problem, which is the second issue which you raise. Well, what do you do about these problems? What do you do about these corporate failures? What do you do about these managers that do abuse their position? Well, one, one, one argument would be there may be other regulatory strategies you want to deploy rather than uh, using duties. Um, but I, I don't think that's necessarily the response that you get from the Delaware uh, 
um, judiciary. I think the response is, it's more a sort of a, you know, we need to look at this from a higher level, you know, 30,000 feet level, and we need to understand that these things will happen. At some level, they are unavoidable, would say, said the Delaware courts, but if we try to address individual instances of malpractice and we're too aggressive um, in addressing those individual instances, then what we might find is that we destroy a significant amount of value production elsewhere in the economy, and that's the, the difficult trade-off. Now, whether we think theirs is the appropriate trade-off is a different issue, but that's certainly the argument they take. We don't do risk-taking well, we don't do risk assessment well. How do we address these individual cases? Well, we're not going to address these individual cases. We're just going to really let them fly. Um, because we think that overall more value will be generated by holding back. Uh, regarding the uh, issue of benefiting the society at large, I find this kind of a poor excuse for the, for the managers who fail to, to, to deliver. And uh, wh why would shareholders care, in fact, about this society? I have my own mortgage, I have to feed my children, pay their college tuition, and so on. So, um, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question, you know, why, why would shareholders care, right? You, man, you look at an individual company, you would say those shareholders, um, those individual shareholders want, would want to hold those managers aggressively to account. Um, but then you actually you look at those shareholders, and they're actually not typically in the large UK and US companies. They're not just shareholders in that one company. They're shareholders in a, in a, tr in a considerable number of companies in, uh, in the UK or the US market. Then you look at how those shareholders have behaved. Now, there's an earlier case in Delaware, which we haven't talked about today, that actually did hold managers accountable for breach of the duty of care, and it was shocking. Now, what happened as a result of that was that the Delaware legislature introduced what we used to have before 1929. We, as we mentioned in the lecture, we used to have liability waivers. So the Delaware legislature introduced liability waivers that were not previously available until 1985. Those liability waivers were available if the shareholders approved of those liability waivers. The vast majority of Delaware companies now have liability waivers, and the vast majority of shareholders have approved of them and continue to do so today. So when we look at it from those shareholders' perspective, you might say, well, yeah, those shareholders want to be demanding of the individual managers, but when those shareholders also ask the question, we look at our portfolio of investments, what is the best legal structure that will maximize the value of all those investments? Well, interestingly, they have made a choice to waive liability for breach of the duty of care. Now, we could problematize those waivers in some respects, but I think that fact in of itself is, is interesting. Um. You say um, managers are usually, we expect managers to take um, positive net value projects. And couldn't you say from a UK perspective where shareholders have um, the possibility to fire their managers fairly easily, um, and shareholders have limited liability, which means that positive net value from their perspective means something different. It doesn't mean an efficient decision. They only take part of the losses and um, take all of the, um, of the gains. So couldn't it be that this structure in the UK already incentivizes the managers who can easily be fired to take um, this positive net value assessment from a shareholder's point of view with this limited liability um, uh, um, effect? And um, if we then compare that to um, the U.S. system, um, where managers cannot 
be fired by the shareholders in, in, in normal circumstances. And where share, uh, managers might have an incentive to take a lower degree of risk just to keep in their in, in, in office because they know if they take high risk decisions the company m might fail whereas um, keeping the risk profile down will keep them in their office forever so um, they have less incentive to take risk and then we might say um, from a starting point, U.S. managers have less incentive to take risk, so we um, have a low standard of liability to incentivize to take um, risk. And then in the U.K., we just have the opposite effect, and it might actually um, level out. Yeah, I think mean, you can quote in so many different ways. Other mechanisms that attempt to control managers. So. You're right, on the one hand, that you know, in the UK there are much stronger removal rights for everyone who doesn't know. In the UK you can remove a director as a shareholder by passing a uh, majority resolution, a simple uh, shareholder resolution. You don't have to give a reason for it. In the United States, in most companies, uh, in between the term of office, which usually lasts about three years, you need to have a really good course. You need to have some demonstration of legality. So it's much easier to move directors in the UK than it is the United States. Now what's the relationship of that to the duty of care? Well, it can work in multiple ways. You might say, on the one hand, it allows you to continue to have high standard of care because um, the threat of removal incentivizes you to maximize value in the, in the first instance and therefore the duty of care concern uh, won't get in the way of you continuing to maximize value. But it could of course work the other way. You might say because you already have this excellent mechanism of removing directors and holding them to account for removal rights, you therefore don't need to rely upon, uh, upon the duty of care um, to do um, that work uh, for you. You might also say, and this works in so many different ways, you might also say that this just simply makes things worse and we don't empirically know whether it does or not. Um, you might say it makes things worse because it increases um, the worry that managers will have that not only are they exposed to liability if things go wrong, but if things go wrong they may lose their jobs very quickly of the powerful removal rights. So that may in turn not result in taking decisions that maximize long-term value, but it results in you taking decisions that actually uh, do not do so, the less risky decisions. Keep everything looking nice so that shareholders are largely happy and you keep things ticking, uh, ticking over. Um, so uh, it could work in multiple ways. I think though ultimately probably doesn't make the difference you're claiming it makes, and the reason it doesn't make a difference you're, you're, you're suggesting it makes is because shareholders don't use those rights. Shareholders are rationally apathetic, they don't pay attention, and they're not, they don't aggressively engage with those rights. So I think in the UK, the threat of removal for slightly poor behavior is, is, uh, is, is there in the United States, but it's probably overstated because most of the time, even those institutional shareholders don't want to deploy the power they so, it's a great question. It works, I think, in so many multiple ways. It's difficult to know where it ends up. There's a lot of talk about cooperatives at the moment. Do you think that could be a better form for undertaking business than the current corporate forms that are available? What would that entail? What, what would that entail for, the corp for company law? Yeah. What would it entail? I'm I don't know. That's my, that's, if we had more cooperatives... I, I don't know. I don't know enough about the structure of cooperatives um, and how they would operate. But is, is that a, is that a, could that be a more successful form going forward? Do you think than than the current form for us all? 
No, I, I don't think so. Um, just simply because the cost of raising capital to um, carry out activities through a cooperative form in which I presume you mean the workers own the company. Yeah, but if straightforward, if that was the model was employee ownership completely, then it, the cost of actually raising money to do business would be too high. But I think there are, and there is scope, and I think the crisis is, could throw that into relief, although it hasn't really done so in, in the way that I think some of us might hope it would have done. Thinking about alternative ways of connecting different constituencies to the company, and taking those more seriously in the UK. Uh, whether that be through some form of employee representation or indeed through employee ownership, etc. So, my, my, my sense is that it, the crisis will make no difference whatsoever to those discussions, although it would be very nice if it did, because it would, be, it would open up discussions and debates that, that have remained, I think, closed in this country.